So page 8, where it says essence and persons, is where we will be here in a moment. But uh, for now, I want to review these very important terms. So these are the terms that I introduced at the top of page 7, or rather Dean introduced. Singularity, okay? The top of page 7, it says God is a simple being. He is singular. When we talk about singularity in reference to the Trinity... We are saying that there is only one God in existence. We are monotheists. Sometimes you will encounter a a person who is not a Christian who wants to argue with you about the Trinity, though that person does not understand the Trinity. That happens actually quite a bit. And the person will start to say something like, okay, so there are three, you believe in three beings. No, we do not. Three beings would mean three gods. We don't believe in three gods. We believe that God is one. There is only one God in existence. And so again, at the top of page 7, God is a simple being. Simple means he cannot be divided. He's not made of parts. He is singular. There's also plurality within the Godhead. And this is where they you know, get this idea, you believe in three beings. Well, we do believe in plurality. We believe in three. But not in reference to the being of God. We believe in three in reference to the persons. God has revealed himself in Trinity. When we say Trinity, we don't mean three beings. We don't mean three gods. We mean three persons. So the next line there on page seven at the top, within his simplicity and within his total unity, he is plural. Father, Son, and Spirit. There's plurality. And then finally, there's equality. All three persons are revealed as God individually. And that's that's very, very important. You'll hear more about that today and next week. Each person of the Godhead is divine. All three are equal in essence. So if you could grasp this, you've grasped what has been revealed to us about the Trinity. Now I hesitate, I always hesitate to say, you understand the Trinity. Or you've grasped the Trinity. Because you're still a creature after all, and God is, his ways are higher than your ways, Scripture says. And you're never going to be able to fully wrap your mind around the amazingly unique nature of God. But if you can grasp these principles that are from Scripture, and you know, we you have all these verses on your sheet, and there were more in addition to that that we looked at that explain these principles from the Bible. If you can recognize that, you can recognize what has been revealed to us about the Trinity, and you can be confident in explaining. What the Godhead is like. There's singularity in being, there's plurality in persons, and then there's equality among the persons. So another way to say this, now we're back to middle of page 8. Sorry, I took a little diversion. Middle of page 8, we're back to discussing essence and persons. God is one in essence and three in persons. If you can memorize that line, you're doing really, really well. God is one in essence, but he is three in persons. Now, those are not words that we use very often. Just that word essence, we typically don't use in reference to God just in our everyday language, right? So we have to define that, which we will. And this word persons, why not people? We always say people. We don't say persons. That's kind of weird to say. Well, we'll discuss that too. So God is one in essence, singular, three in persons, plural. So let's define these terms. Essence, now this is your blank on the sheet on page 8. Essence is what something is. 
a set of characteristics defining nature. So the essence of God is the nature of God. The essence of God is what defines God. So if, if you can think back to previous lessons, or you could even flip back there if you want. I started on page three when we were talking about God. We started listing off these attributes of God. God is creator. That is necessary to understanding his essence is to understand him as creator. He is transcendent. He is eternal. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's immutable, never changing. All of those attributes define his essence, the essence of God. And God's essence is defined not only by his incommunicable attributes that I just listed off, but also his communicable attributes. Not only is he eternal and omnipotent, but he's also loving, gracious, merciful, just, patient. You take away one of those things and you no longer have God anymore. So all of these attributes come together to define the essence of God. And everything has an essence. So maybe it's, it's helpful to think through a few illustrations. Uh, a triangle is a classic example here. Uh, what is a triangle? Well, a triangle has a, a definition. There's an essence. You can't just look at a circle and say that's a triangle. You can't look at a square and say that's a triangle. A triangle has three sides. It has three corners. And the, the degrees of the corners add up to 180 degrees. That's the essence of a triangle. Now, of course, there can be different types of triangles, acute and equilateral, and I don't remember, obtuse. I don't know if there are any more than three, but I just remembered three, and I'm pretty impressed with myself. <laughs> there, are, there are at least three types of triangles, <clears throat> but they all fit that definition. Now, uh, there's a, a recent documentary, What is a Woman? You guys heard about that? What is a Woman? Uh, we watched that. And it's this conservative, he's actually Roman Catholic, conservative uh, talk show host, Matt Walsh. He goes out and he interviews a bunch of university professors and so-called doctors and scientists. And he asks them the question, what is a woman? That should be a relatively simple question to answer, especially if you're in the medical field, right? Pretty straightforward because there's such a thing as an essence here that we can define what a woman is. But, of course, in our day and age, they can't define that. Now, there are some areas where it is difficult to uh, define the essence of something. To be glib, there's the debate on, in food, you know, what, what is a sandwich? There's a podcast out there called A Hot Dog is a Sandwich. Is a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> What's the essence of a sandwich? How do you define that? Is a calzone a sandwich? Hmm kind of stupid to talk about that. I get it. Uh, I got, I've got a cup of tea here. Is tea actually just broth? Is broth tea? Okay, you get it, right? Some of those questions can be a little difficult when you're defining what is, what is the essence of something. But when it comes to God, he has revealed his essence, hasn't he? He's revealed to us in scripture who God is. And, and it's easy because he's absolutely unique. And so you take all this combina these combinations of what he's told us about himself, and that's the essence of God. Now, person is different. A person is a who. So that's your next blank there. A person is a who, a relational subject with personality and identity. With personality and identity. God's personhood 
is defined by how he characterizes himself, and he characterizes himself in three. So to think about this for yourself, your, your humanity is your essence or your substance. You are a human. However, you're also an individual person with a name and your own individual personality and identity. No two humans are the same human, right? So there's a distinction between essence and persons. We've got, you know, what, 10, 10 of us, 12 of us here in this room, and no two of us are the same, yet we, are, we all share in being, we're all human, right? We, we all identify, or we don't identify as human, we are by nature human. But we have these personal identities where we are individual, distinct persons. And so God is one, yet there are three distinct individual persons of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. But there's one God. So there's one God, one essence, and three persons. You can uh, think too, like uh, angels, for example. Sometimes scripture you'll be reading and it says, an angel. An angel did this or said that, whatever. And that's all you hear. And then other times you hear Michael or Gabriel. Okay, so one is just saying, there's an angel and, and that's, you just know the essence. You don't know the person. But then when you hear, oh, Michael the archangel or Gabriel spoke to Mary. Now there's an identity attached to that subject. Okay, so that's the distinction between essence and persons. So some conclusions that we have on the Trinity. The Trinity is counterintuitive, but it's not contradictory. This is the divine nature that we're talking about. When I say counterintuitive, it's counterintuitive. I shouldn't have put those other ones up there yet. It's counterintuitive because for all creatures, we are locked in. We are one essence and one person. Your lovable dog or cat that you have at home, that's just a, a lovable little thing that's just, it's one cat with one identity, one person, right? You yourself, you're, you're one human, you're one person. Yet God is one God and he is three persons. That's different, isn't it? The creator is species unique in that sense and in other senses as well. The creator is one who is three. He is the three in one. You can't say that about any creature. All creatures are one and one. God is one and three. That's the distinction. Hold on a second, Joe. So all three persons are one God. He is undivided in his substance. Substance is another word for essence. His essence is not divided. So his essence isn't one-third father, one-third son, one-third spirit. We'll talk about that. All three persons are distinct. God is eternally diverse within himself because the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. On and on it goes. Yes, Joe? Oh, I just thought of me, myself, and I. Oh, yeah. Doctors give pills for that. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? When, when, we, <clears throat> when creatures believe that we are more than one person, that's a sign of mental illness, right? Yeah, because uh, there's only one. There's only one being who is multiple persons, and that's God. Okay, any thoughts or questions on um, this before we move on to the next page? I'll take my tea bag out here. Thoughts or questions on essence and persons? You all got it, huh? You're going to be professional theologians writing books before you know it. 
Your faces do not look confident. Okay, hopefully you're alive this morning. Pretty quiet. You want me to keep talking? Sure. I'm unique, just like everyone else. <laughs> that's right. <clears throat> yeah, that's like those nonconformists in local high schools that wear all black. You know, they're the nonconformists, but they all wear the same clothes and champion the same color and have the same attitude, listen to the same music, but they're nonconformists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Page nine, how we speak of God. So today, my goal is to get us through the uh, functional subordination section. You see that on page nine. And then next week, uh, Dean will lead us through the illustrations and heresies when it comes to the Trinity. And... Uh, that's a really fun lesson. I hope Dean has fun with it. I've always loved that lesson. Uh, you see the illustrations we're going to look at for the Trinity, the three-leaf clover, the sun, uh, triplets. Maybe you've never heard anybody use the illustration of triplets for the Trinity. It's a really bad one, so I hope you never hear it. And uh, forms of water, too, how water is ice and gas and liquid. We're going to talk through all of those illustrations and how each one actually reflects a different heresy. And why they're heresies. We're going to talk through that. Okay. And so that'll be next week. But this week I want to talk about functional subordination. And this is all is having to do with how we speak of God. Now I'm going to quiz you after we just went over this. So you better get it. There are no excuses here this morning. What three words must you use to explain the biblical doctrine of the Godhead, the Trinity? Give them to me. Singularity. Plurality. Equality. Equality. Very good. Okay. Burn them into the brain. Remember these three. Singularity, plurality, equality. God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James 2.19, you believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble. Plurality, God is one. Multiple. There's a multiple within God. Not that there are multiple gods, but there are multiple persons. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image. Plurality. Matthew 28.19, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Plurality. And then there's equality. All three are God. In Scripture, you see Jesus called God. He refers to himself as the great I am. He says he's equal with God. I and the Father are one. You see that over and over again in Jesus' ministry. Okay? And then you have the Holy Spirit being referred to as God in Acts 5. You have the Holy Spirit being called Creator in Job 33. The Holy Spirit is eternal, described as eternal in Hebrews 9. So all three are God. They do not come together to make a conglomerate God. All three on their own are God. That's what's meant by equality. Okay? All right. So to those three words... We must add a concept that is important to understanding the relationship between the persons. So what we've done so far is we've described, we've, we've dwelt upon and we've described how God is one. We are monotheists. That's very clear in Scripture. God is three in person. Okay, we've, I've been hitting this over and over again just this morning. But now we're going to add a layer to this. How do the three persons relate to one another? Perhaps you've not thought about this, or maybe you've spent a great deal of time thinking about this. 
Is one of them in charge? Is one of them, does one of them carry some sort of seniority? Well, all three are eternal, so there can't be seniority in that kind of sense. They're co-eternal. But how does that work? How do the three relate to each other? Are they like three presidents of the United States, and then all three go out and equally lead? Well, let's, let's dwell on that for a bit. Functional subordination. Here's your blank. Amid the equality of the persons of the triune God, there is submission. Submission. That's the, that's the blank. And this is tricky. I'm sure you can start to think how this might be tricky. Because I've been spending all this time saying they are all equal, which is true. They are co-eternal, co-equal. Each person is fully, truly God on his own. Father, Son, and Spirit. So then when you start thinking about how could, how could one of those submit to the other? How could one of those persons submit to another one of those persons if they are truly equal? Well, that can start to put your brain in a bit of a pretzel if it wasn't there already. The Son's submission to the Father does not make them unequal. The same with the Holy Spirit. And now we'll, we'll get into the text now. We'll start looking at a bunch, bunch of text here. So let's look at the Father's authority expressed by the incarnate Christ. We see this most clearly. Now we do see it in the Old, Old Testament, but we see this most clearly in the New Testament. So for this section, where we're talking about submission and subordination, that's, those two mean the same thing, submission and subordination, we're going to focus on the New Testament. Because that's where it's clearest, okay? Is, uh, this doctrine is clearest in the New Testament. Particularly when God the Son takes on human flesh and lives a life on earth, He expresses submission to the Father. So let's uh, turn together to Matthew. Let's look at all these just together, okay? <clears throat> Starting with Matthew 20. I think that's supposed to be 26. No. no. 27, I think, might be right. Yeah, 27. Matthew 27, 46. Here's a, uh, a verse that maybe you've never thought about in the context of the Father... And the son and the sub submission relationship that exists there. Matthew twenty seven forty six. We have Jesus on the cross. So this is the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is about to die, and it says in Matthew twenty seven forty six about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And this is quoting Psalm 22. And the translation of that, it says right here in the text is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, so often we can uh, get hung up on how is forsaken to be interpreted there, which is a very critical question, right? What does it mean that the son was forsaken in that moment? That's a very important conversation to have. But for our purposes here, look at how he addresses the Father. My God. My God. You have the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ in flesh, calling out to the Father and calling him 
his God. Yes, Stan. Wasn't that, excuse me, wasn't that, or wouldn't that be the mortal side requesting or making a statement to God? Very good. Yes, it's Jesus in his humanity crying out that way. So, uh, and there are other, there are other places we'll look to where that comes out. And let's go to that next one, John 14. John 14, 28. <clears throat> and this, this is one of those clear and obvious instances of this is Jesus speaking from his humanity. John 14, 28. Would someone read that for us? You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Okay, now that can just be like ground-shaking. You hear Jesus say, the Father is greater than I. Now let's make a note here. This is John 14, 28, just four chapters after John 10, 30. What does Jesus say in John 10, 30? I and the Father are one. Same book. Four chapters apart, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then you have him saying, the Father is greater than I. Well, of course, Jesus in his humanity was made a little lower than the angels even, Hebrews says. If he's a little lower than the angels, he, of course, very appropriately could say, the Father is greater than I. Because in his flesh, he was made in the form of a servant. He wasn't walking around glowing, was he? He wasn't walking around and there wasn't anything outwardly about him that identified him as divine, was there? Other than walking on water. Well, that's true. And, you know, not sinning. That that, that was another clue. (laughs) But, uh, But Isaiah 53 says there was nothing about him that was extraordinary. Okay, Joe. Was Jesus as a man... Still God? Yes. We'll talk more about that when we get to the section that's particularly about Jesus. Yep. Yep. He didn't lose his deity when he took on flesh. Yes, Lizzie. So did he hear other people's thoughts? Yes. Multiple times in the Gospels it says Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, or Jesus knew what somebody was thinking and he replied to their thoughts out loud. Yeah. So how... We'll talk about that when we get to the section on Jesus. It's a great question. I mean, and that's the classic stumbling passage, right? But uh, if you want to start thinking on those things, you can start considering what did Jesus give up in his humanity? Was Jesus still in heaven when he was on earth? Did he give up his omnipresence or was he still omnipresent when he was walking on the earth? Did Jesus know all things in his divinity? Did he know the day and the hour as the divine son of God, but in his humanity, he did not know the day or the hour? Or did he truly give that up totally? Something to think about. We'll get there eventually. That doesn't break your brain, right? You can handle that. And then John twenty seventeen. John chapter 20. Verse 17. 
This is after the resurrection. Question. I haven't taught you this yet, so you're not obligated to know. But I hope you know. Does Jesus still have a human body? No. No. Well, I guess. Yeah. Well, he appeared to his disciples in the human body. He, he sure did. He still has the image of, of God, I, I, so he is, has the body, but he is not in the body. But he's like, you can see the body, but he's not a body, he's a spirit. What about Thomas's interaction with I Jesus? Okay. Virginia? I thought that, that they told, he told them not to touch him uh, at that time when he first appeared to them. It's been my understanding that he told them not to touch them right now. No, Thomas stuck his hand in the wound. And then he said, my Lord and my God, when he said that. And Jesus said, blessed are you because you have seen and believed. But even more blessed are those who without seeing believe. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and you've got Mary in the garden coming down and touching his feet? The answer is yes. He retains a human body. Is that human body like ours? Good. And he can appear in a room without opening a door? He's been glorified. And where is he right now? Where is his human body? Is it in the grave? Okay. Now, that was just a test to see if you're Christians this morning. No. <clears throat> he ascended into heaven. So for any kind of body to be in the presence of God in heaven, it better be glorified. Because can your body of death and sin be in the existence of God who dwells in unapproachable light? No. Cannot. All right. Take all that theology with you into verse 17 of John 20. Who can read that for us? John 20, verse 17. Who's got it? Okay. Jesus said to her, Stop pleading to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Okay. So you have here Jesus saying that he's going to ascend. And he's ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Again, we're seeing that relationship between the incarnate Son and the Father, where He is submitting to the Father. Multiple times in Jesus' ministry, He said He came not to do His own will, but the will of the one who sent Him. That's submission. And we have Jesus using language here on multiple occasions. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm ascending to my God. You see that? Um, in his humanity, of course, it was very rightful for him to appeal to the Father as his God. Okay? So we see the Father's authority expressed by the incarnate Christ, particularly in the language that he's using to refer to the Father, my God. Now, sometimes this will be called, in theological conversations, this will be called the economic trinity, I can make things a little more confusing for you. This doesn't have to do with the stock market. Okay, This doesn't have to do with uh, Austrian school, Maynard Keynes, or F.A. Hayek, anything like that. This is 
Economic submission or economic trinity has to do with the relationship within the trinity. It regards the relationship between the persons in the trinity. And so what you're starting to learn here is how the economic trinity functions, how the persons relate to one another. And in Jesus' life on earth, he related to the Father by calling him not only his Father, but his God. So when someone, perhaps a Jehovah's Witness or whoever you're engaging with, will we'll go to these passages and see, say, Jesus can't be equal with God. Because look, he says that God is his God. What you need to do is say, well, let's back up. And you can take out your notes from this class if you want to. And you can go through the passages where it very clearly states that Jesus as the Son of God is God himself. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. That's the beginning of John's Gospel. So if someone wants to jump to the middle of John's gospel and say, look, Jesus said the Father is his God. You say, well, let's read it in context, which means let's start at the beginning of the letter. And the beginning declares Jesus as the eternal God. So that's an appropriate place to start. When we get into Jesus referring to the Father as his God, that has to do with the economic relationship between the Father and Son, particularly as the Son was in flesh living his life on earth. So we got to go slowly when approaching these things. Another thing you'll find when you're engaging somebody who doesn't believe in the Trinity is they'll be one, they'll just like want to go to a verse and bang, boom, it's done. <laughs> boop, boop, boop. I just turned to, to this verse and now, ha, 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 Trinity doesn't exist and they move on. That's not how theology works because biblical theology takes the whole what? Bible. The whole Bible. Okay, you can't just turn to a verse and say everything's right there. It's not all right there. All right. Let's continue. <clears throat> Let's look at the Son's submission to the Father. Matthew 26. Let's turn there together. Matthew 26, 39. Jesus in the garden. What do you remember Jesus saying in the garden when he's praying to the Father? Very good. Let's see the Son's submission to the Father in Matthew 26. Let's do verses 39 and 42. Do you have it, Lizzie? Are you there? Matthew 26? Yeah, do 39 and 42. 39. And going a little further, farther... He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak again. For the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Okay. Very good. <clears throat> so Jesus here is making a request. And it says, Not my will, but your will be done. We'll talk more about that in Philippians 2. But in that, of course, we see on a very simple level here, he was submitting to the will of the Father in his life. He was submitting to the will of the Father. 
Not my will, but your will be done. Okay? John 14, 31. John chapter 14, verse 31. You can also jot down John 7, 18. That's another passage where you can see Jesus' submission to the Father. John 7, 18, Jesus says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So Jesus says that he was seeking the glory of the one who sent him. Jesus wasn't seeking his own glory in his human life. He was seeking the glory of the one who sent him. That is true submission to the Father. When you think about it, just the title Son indicates submission too, doesn't it? Because uh, when you have a, one who is called Father and one who is called Son, the Son submits to the Father. That's how that relationship works. The Father does not submit to the Son. But let's look at uh, John 14, verse 31. Who's got that for us? I do. Okay, go ahead. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father have, excuse me, gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from there. All right. The Father has given the Son commands. And that's what the Son did in His flesh. He was sent by the Father. That's something else that we can notice in these passages. The Son was sent by the Father, which again indicates a submission relationship. And in that sending, the Father has given the Son commands. And that's all that Jesus did was what the Father commanded Him. And then I'll read for us Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 8, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Did Jesus ever have to be obedient before he took on flesh? According to this passage, it seems not so. That's what it looks like from this passage. And there's a debate in Christian theology as to whether the Son has eternally submitted to the Father or if He began submitting to the Father when He took on flesh. That is another one of those times where we're just June bugs trying to do quantum physics, right? (laughs) But in Philippians 2, it tells us that He existed in the form of God He did not count equality with God a thing to be used for selfish gain, for his own advantage. But he emptied himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what we can pull from that is at least in his incarnate state, once he was born on earth, he now submits to the Father in his humanity. He submits to the Father. At least we can say that, okay? He's obedient. Who's he obedient to? The Father, the only one. All right? What verse was that that you... Philippians 2.8. Questions on father and son, authority, submission, relationship there. I think Jesus was the 
like when he became human, he had to show us the example, and because he became a creature, he had to submit to that position. And you know that's why he pulled out to say, you know, I glorify, I to glorify the one who sent me. So it was just like um, kind of like his position. Like well, uh, sorry, I'm hung up on one phrase he said. He didn't become a creature. We need to be careful on that. Well, no, yeah. So we just but need to be careful. He became created as far as when... No, no. That's not better. But no, like I mean... Like he, took on, he, he took on creatureliness. He added humanity to his nature. Yeah. Yeah. The Son of God should never, ever be categorized as a, cre as a creature in any sense. Okay. I understand what you're saying. Like but meant, like, when he was this is just what I do for a living, so it bothered me. Okay. <laughs> so, sorry, well, what's your question? Your, your real question. Well, because he became born in this world, yeah. he had to, yeah, he, he took on flesh and then he had to submit his position and yeah. he had to show us the example. Yes, good. Right. <coughs> yep, that's okay. Subject, also subject to the frailties of what a martyr was. Uh, yes, hunger. Needing sleep. Yeah. Yeah, the, the last verse of Luke chapter 2 has always been a real fascinating one for me. Where it talks about the boy Jesus. He learned and grew in stature and in favor with God and man. I mean, to think that the Son of God wore a diaper. That's... You look at him in the manger yeah. He, he learned his Hebrew. Learned how to walk. Drool down, running down his face. Helplessness. Needing to be fed. Someone picking him up and feeding him. While sustaining the universe. Yeah, while sustaining the universe. Yes. Yeah, um, we're going to sing today the Christmas song, Who Would Have Dreamed? And in the chorus it says, Who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we could hold God in our hands? The giver of life was born in the night, revealing God's glorious plan to save the world. That's pretty amazing. All right, let's talk about the Holy Spirit now. The Holy Spirit submission. So we understand we got Father and Son stuff going on. I think that's easier to grasp. Well, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. And we're only going to focus on Gospel of John here, so this will be easy for you to track along with all these. John 14, 15, and 16. John chapter 14, starting with verse 26 there. I'll give you a moment to jot those down. So how do we consider the Holy Spirit as a person relating to the Father and the Son? That is, that is a, a good question. And a little bit difficult to answer, but uh, we, we, can, we could go all over the Bible for this one like we could with the other two. But in John 14 through 16... This is the most, uh, I guess, high-density theology of the Holy Spirit anywhere in the Bible. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's sharing all sorts of good things with them. 
And among those good things is a profound theology of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at John 14, verse 26. Who will read that for us? I got it. Okay. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I said to you. What do we see in that verse that indicates something about the Holy Spirit's relationship with the Father and Son? Okay. So the Father is sending the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't send himself. Spirit is sent in Jesus' name. He's not sent in his own name. It's also very interesting. Okay, good. And we don't have any passages that say the Spirit sent the Son, but we have several passages that say the Father sent the Son. So here you have the Spirit being sent by the Father in the name of Jesus, showing something about the relationship. But let's continue. The end of chapter 15, next chapter, 15, 26, and 27, the last two verses of that chapter. Who can read those for us? 15, 26, and 27. Okay. Okay. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. All right, so it's mainly verse 26 here, and we've got some added layers. What on earth is going on now? How does this differ from what we just read? There's a little bit of distinction. Helper, of course, is in reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus has already made that clear. He's saying, whom I send. Okay. All right. Before, it was the Father doing the sending in Jesus' name. Now it's Jesus doing the sending from the Father. So there's something joint about the Son and the Father sending the Spirit. And then there's another phrase we get here too. Proceeds. Yeah. The spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. What do you think about that? Not much, huh? <laughs> well, let me give you a word. It's not on the not on the PowerPoint. Let me give you a word that's a weird word. Spiration. Spiration. Now, it's not inspiration. (laughs) It's not inspiration. It's not that word. It's spiration. This is the word that we get. I I believe it's from the Latin. It's not from the Greek here. For that word proceed. Kind of like uh, how we get the word rapture from the Latin. The word rapture isn't in the Bible. But the word rapture comes from the Latin. That's how we got that word. We get this word spiration. To describe the nature of the Holy Spirit being the one who proceeds from the Father. Now this is pretty, pretty interesting stuff. We've already learned these things that we, we can't let go of. If you go back to, uh, let's see. If you go back to page, where did I put that? Into page 7. 
End of page 7. Someone tell me what you have in your notes. On page 7, down at the bottom, for Acts 5 and Hebrews 9. What, what do you have on, the, on those notes there? Acts 5 and Hebrews 9. What did you jot down? Holy Spirit is God. Okay, the Holy Spirit is God. The Bible has declared that to us. What else has the Bible declared? Jesus is eternal. Okay. Very good. Okay, in Hebrews 9, we have this label, and this isn't some, you know, just the label that you just throw onto something willy-nilly. The eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit is eternal. Eternality is an attribute of God. Okay. So... The Holy Spirit is plainly called God in Acts 5. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And again, we can go multiple places. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I ascend, ascend to the highest, you are there. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. No creature is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit created, Job, again, Job 33. You have in Genesis 1, at, from the very beginning, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. We have this amazing testimony of God the Spirit. So when we get into the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, does that mean that He came into existence at a point in time? No. If He came into existence at a point in time, He's not eternal and He's not God. So what this tells us, though, is that there's some sort of relationship that the Spirit has with the Father that's defined by spiration, that's defined by proceeding from. Uh, you can consider this too with uh, Jesus' nature as begotten. When we say that Jesus is begotten, or the Son of God was begotten by God the Father, are we saying that God the Son came into existence at a point in time? No. Only creatures come into existence at a point in time. Only immortal. Only immortal, right. And Jesus is called... The begotten of the Son of God, or the begotten of the Father, it's not just like in his flesh, it's like germane to his nature. Today I have begotten you, God says. <clears throat> so, what this means is in the relationship, there's this, uh, what's the word? Dynamic relationship. There's this dynamicy here. I don't know what the right word is. The noun, noun for dynamic. But there's this, uh, there's this interesting aspect to the relationship where the Son is begotten by the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. That doesn't mean they came into existence at a point in time, but it means that their natures rest upon one another. The way C.S. Lewis talks about this, here, I'll use this example of my Bible here. The Bible is resting upon this, what is this called? Shelf? We'll call it a shelf. The Bible is resting upon this shelf. We know in this world that that shelf had to exist before that Bible could be put on that shelf, right? There's no other way. You can't put a Bible on a shelf that doesn't exist. The shelf had to exist first. Well, what's interesting is the Son's nature, this will be the Son, rests upon the Father. But there's never been a time that that wasn't the case. They are outside of time. Eternally, it has been that way. 
where the Son is eternally begotten of the Father and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. Think about it when you're trying to sleep tonight, all right? That'll, that'll really help you out. <clears throat> well, I'll take questions after we look at the next two passages. In uh, John 16. John 16, verse 7. John 16, 7. Who will read that for us? One verse. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All right. Again, you have Jesus saying that he is going to send the Holy Spirit. And just being sent denotes... That someone is sending you with authority. The Holy Spirit was sent under the authority of the Son of God. And let's look at verses 12 to 15. Same chapter. Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit's role when he comes is to glorify himself? No, he's glorifying Jesus. And again, I, I just mentioned it to you, it's not on the screen, but John seven eighteen. Jesus said that his mission, when he came in the flesh, was to glorify the Father. And the Spirit, and as he comes, is to glorify the Son. You can also just think of the terms that are used to describe the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of God. We also see in the New Testament, he's the Spirit of Christ. Those terms alone show that he's not of himself, but that he's sent by another. All right? So thoughts or questions on the submission, the subordination that is found amid the persons of the Trinity. Was it under John 7 reference? John 7, 18. Chapter 7, verse 18. Lizzie, do you have a thought or a question there? Um... Okay. I, I understand. And I like how all of this, you know, points to our submission to the Holy Spirit within the instruction given still. Yes. And continually Jesus refers to him as he. Yes. As is our instruction. And we have to train ourselves not to say it as our nature wants to. That's right. Because what, what we covered at the start of this lesson on page 8, or sorry, page, yeah, page 8, a person is a who? A relational subject with personality and identity. The Holy Spirit is a relational person. He has personality and identity. You can't relate to an it. And an it doesn't have identity. But the Holy Spirit does. He has a will. He has emotion. He can be grieved. Okay. 
Sebas. Uh, what was Jesus doing before he came to the world? Like, because he was a son before yes. the creation of the world. Yes. But what he was doing and the, Spirit, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. So, um, <clears throat> they were active. There's no doubt about that. We perhaps don't have as much information as we would like, but we have information. Jesus and the Spirit were both creating. Uh, they're both testified to as creator in Scripture. Jesus was speaking, revealing. Uh, I think quite often when we see God interacting with someone in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. When Moses saw the backside of God, Moses saw God's back, I think that was Jesus. So a pre-incarnate form of Jesus, before Jesus took on flesh. And we see those types of appearances throughout the, uh, the Old Testament, especially the title, Angel of the Lord. The Angel of the Lord appeared. I think that's Jesus appearing to people. So um, we have Him speaking. We have Him appearing. Uh, we have Him interacting with the Father in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. You have that kind of stuff going on too. And so there's definitely activity there. Yeah, And the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament too. But He would come and go. He would come upon uh, people and empower them. But He could be taken away. In Psalm 51, David prayed to God, Take not Thy Holy Spirit from me. We don't pray that anymore. Because He seals us for the day of redemption. He permanently indwells us. We become temples of the Holy Spirit. So that's an important distinction. Joe. I thought I understood the Trinity. Yeah. Accepted it just as it was. Uh-huh. Never thought about submission. Now I have to think about it. That's good. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. Is to just mess you up. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just like the Marines, they, they tear you down before they build you up, you know. <laughs> but in the Trinity, only Jesus has a body in heaven? Yes, very good. That is very, a very, very important point around here. People will want to say that the Father has flesh and bone. There is zero reason in the Bible to say that God the Father has a body. No reason. But of course, Jesus does. Why would he want a body when he is. It'd be quite the downgrade, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. And, and that's how. And, and that's a great point, Virginia. Because <coughs> think of how Jesus' incarnation is described. It was a great act of humility. He had to empty himself, it was a condescension. And so to say God has a body and has always had a body. That is to have a very high view of humanity and a very low view of God. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, if, um, since God doesn't have a body, I think it's just like, so God, is, the God the Father is spirit just as much as the spirit is spirit? John 4.24, Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is spirit. So, yeah. 
Uh, I think that's absolutely fair to say. Yeah, immaterial is, is the theological word. He is not made of atoms so or why, any kind of parts. Why is there a third part to God if he is There is not a part. Well, I mean, like, why is there the, the, the spirit, the spirit yeah. if God is already it? Like, Two things. My answer to every why question about God is always the same. Because God is most glorified that way. So that's my first answer. My second answer is because there's a distinction in function. The Father chooses, elects, predestines. The Son takes on flesh, bleeds, redeems. The Spirit seals, indwells, binds together the people of God. Three distinct functions. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for who you are and that you are greater than us. We thank you for your word. And we ask that as we continue our fellowship today, that our minds would continue to be expanded as we dwell upon your majestic nature, that you would be lifted up in our hearts and minds and honored among us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.